Hey, welcome to the online ministry at Coastal Community Church. I want to thank you so much for checking us out, and we're so grateful that these sermons online are benefiting uh, your spiritual growth. Uh, but one of the things we have a deep conviction of at Coastal Community Church is that you're a part of a local church. And so uh, while we want these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, we also want to encourage you to find a local church. So if you're in our community, we'd love for you to visit us. Check us out. We're on 101 Village Avenue in Yorktown, and uh, we have three service times on Sunday morning that you can see if you can be a part of our community. The service times are 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and so we'd love for you to visit us. Um, when you visit us this summer, we're going to be doing a, a new series called One, and uh, we're going to be taking our church body through uh, the letter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth. And the letter is written because Paul is horrified to find out that this church is not unified together as a body um, to make Jesus Christ famous in their community. And I find that interesting because we live in a culture where I think sometimes we're uh, shocked when a church is working in unity. And so that's what we want to be a coastal community church. We want to be a church that works in unity uh, so that we can better uplift the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll join us for this new series as we go through 1 Corinthians. The series is called One. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Over the course of this summer, there's this theme of, of unity. It's been this, this thread throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And, and we know so far that unity is, is a struggle for the, the, the Corinths here. Right? They're, they're far from being the model church. They're not, they're not functioning as one unified body of Christ. And we, we see that. We've, we've read about that. Uh, we've read about their immorality that, that's plagued the members of their local church. You know, we've, we've seen that um, from chapters since really last week that there's, there's disunity even inside of the, the corporate worship session, right? There, there's Sunday morning meetings. And this morning, Paul's beginning this discussion about, about unity in the midst of diversity. And he, he begins this discussion about unity through diversity by talking specifically about the spiritual gifts. And if you're familiar at all with the letter to the, the church in Corinth, you're, you're anticipating chapter 12 because that's when he gets to talking about all the different members, all the different bodies, all their different gifts that they bring to the local church. Now, Pastor Sean um, he's kind of primed the pump a bit, but over the next two weeks, he's going to give some uh, special attention to, to what's known, and, and I kind of uh, put these in a separate category from the spiritual gifts, but it's that of the revelatory gifts. Pastor's, Pastor Sean's going to spend a good bit of time on, and, uh, and if you're interested in the, the spiritual gifts and, and studying more about the revelatory gifts, I would uh, commend a book to you that's uh, called Spiritual Gifts, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, and it's by a guy named Robert L. Thomas. Robert L. Thomas, it's a great little commentary on 1 Corinthians chapters 12 all the way to chapter 14. But what I want to spend time with you this morning on is what I believe is the most important issue in this chapter, and I'm going to show it to you in one verse not only do I think it's the most important truth in this chapter, but I believe it's the most important takeaway that a, a believer can have from reading the Scripture. And, and sadly, it's, it's often the most neglected truth 
as far as us giving our consideration and our attention to. As many of you know, I've been uh, playing the piano from the time that I could read a book. My parents had me in piano lessons. I had to practice every single day. I love playing the piano. Um, It's something that's been a part of me for a long time. Not too long ago, well, probably longer than I realized, we had some friends over, and uh, we were playing a, a board game with them. And the board game, I think, is called Headbands, if you've ever heard of it. And it's where you put a literal headband on, and then you put like a a card, you slide it in the headband, and then you have to guess what's on your forehead by asking the right questions. It's really stupid. And um, the, uh, I think I had one card for the entire duration of the the game. I could never guess what it was, and, uh, and I was being mocked and laughed at by my friends. And by the time we got to the end of the game and I could finally just pull it off and look, it was a big old grand piano that I'd had on my forehead the entire time. Should have been extremely obvious to me, um, but it wasn't. What should be obvious to us as believers, right? What should be really plain to us? What should be soul nourishing? What should be practical and, and, and dare I say even therapeutic to us is a believer's union with Christ, a believer's union with Christ, but we often don't give it consideration, right? If I were to take a survey in the room this morning and I asked you kind of to to define what union with Christ is and define for me some practical implications of a believer's union with Christ, it, it might strike fear in the hearts of some of you if I were to grab those cards and then read them on stage, right? And I bet when many of us read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, We can be super enamored with the spiritual gifts or with the revelatory gifts or what's going to be said about these particular things, and we gloss right over this very important thing that the Apostle Paul says. I've said this before from the stage, but we need more sermons on union with Christ. We need more seminars on a believer's union with Christ. We need support groups that remind us as believers of our union with Christ Jesus. So allow me to, to, to even neglect discussing spiritual gifts for the sake of us take, pulling some takeaways on, on Paul's really important statement that I believe can be found in verse 12. And so I'm gonna read it to you. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna amplify this verse by God's grace with other passages of scripture that I think help us have a, a, a holistic definition of a believer's union with Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the word of God says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. And it's true, and it always will be true, because you're the author. And so, God, I pray over the next few moments, Lord, God, I pray for grace and mercy for myself, Lord, to speak truth, to exalt Christ. And God, I pray for our church, I pray, Lord, that... uh, you would give us humble hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
And I pray that this morning we would walk away with a thorough understanding of our union with our Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I said this a moment ago, but I believe this is, one, this is a, a verse that's glossed over, right? This, you may, this may be the first time you've, you've isolated verse 12 here in chapter 12, and, and you've kind of seen it outside of the context of uh, the spiritual gifts. And, and I want us, like I said, to minimize those things this morning, to, to give attention to this valuable truth that the Holy Spirit's communicating to us through the Apostle Paul. And this passage of Scripture, because of, of the original language, Greek, that it was written in, and because of uh, Paul's intention, I think this passage of Scripture could be translated this way. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, thus in this way it is with Christ, or it's the same way with Christ, Right? Like I said, there's this thread that's running through Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, and it's this issue of unity. And now we're faced with the issue of unity in the corporate church with all the, the, the various spiritual gifts that believers have. Some folks seem to be treated as more valuable than others in this dysfunctional local church. And that's a, another factor that's just playing into the disunity that's already rampant the church at Corinth. Now, the question that I come with when thinking through this issue of unity inside the local church and, 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 and Paul's emphasis on unity is what's biblical unity? Unity is one discussion, but, but what's, what's true biblical God-centered unity? There's, there's a lot of counterfeits to unity, and, and we can't think that we're above those counterfeits of unity. We're, we're prone to, the, to, to those counterfeits of unity. We could, we could even heed the instruction of the Apostle Paul here, everything from fleeing sexual sin and temptation, of we've, as we've discussed multiple times, to, to fulfilling our God-given gender roles that Pastor Sean preached on last night, to to, to being humble and reverent and God-centered in our corporate worship Sunday morning services. And, and, and we could even value one another and still miss the mark on biblical unity, right? We could, we could still miss the mark on what it is that the Apostle Paul is commending to us. And this verse for us contains the answer, and I wanna give it to you right out of the gate if you're taking notes. Union with Christ produces unity with one another. Union with Christ produces unity with one another. And in order for us to see this clearly, we need to work backwards in our text this morning, right? Paul, Paul is saying on the back of this verse that just as the church is composed of many members, yet there are one body, so it's the same with Christ, okay? We see a lot of discord in the local church a lot of times. And and I believe a, a lot of times in our effort to, to solve whatever it is that, that's causing the, the heat in our life, the issues or the problems, we can focus on that exclusively to the neglect of our union with Christ. And, and I get this sense from chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I, I get that, that there's discord in the church at Corinth that's tied to race. It's tied to social class. And it's tied to... to uh, to uh, the, the spiritual gifts. Look with me in verse 13, just one verse after our primary text. Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one 
body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And if you go down a little bit further in verse 21, the apostle Paul says regarding the spiritual gifts, right? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So here in the Corinthian church, we have Jews and Greeks, and we have free men, we have slaves. And on top of that, certain gifts seem to be valued over and above other gifts, right? In the, in the mind of the Corinthians, there are these lesser gifts. That's the makeup of the culture that the Apostle Paul's ministering to when he wrote this letter. Now look back up with me in verse 13. Verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now notice the Apostle Paul's strategy right here. This is strategic what he's doing. He uses the language one body, one spirit. God, in his gracious wisdom and his loving kindness, has made each one of us in this room different. There's different gifts, there's different races, there's different stages in life. We have different strengths, we have different weaknesses since the fall of Adam. We, we bring our various sins, our various temptations, and our sufferings to this local body of believers. And according to the scripture, according to the Apostle Paul's logic, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can persevere together in this Christ-exalting way when we internalize the truth that it's our union with Christ that's our identity. It's our union with Christ that binds us together as God's church. Look around the room for a moment. Right? If, we were, if we were picking teams for an athletic event, you'd pick me last. Right? But, but God's put Coastal Community Church together right, with all of our diverse background strengths and weaknesses. And, and maybe the only thing that we have in common with one another is our union with Christ. And that's enough. That's enough. Secondly, union with Christ is extremely intimate. Union with Christ is extremely intimate. Paul goes as far as as, as using the church and Christ indistinguishably. He he uses them, I don't want to say interchangeably, he says all of the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. So, So just as we're different, but one body in Christ, so Christ is one, with his church. This isn't to say that the, the church is actually Christ. Right? That, that would be blasphemous and wrong, but Paul's using this illustration of one body and many members or one body and, and limbs. Maybe some of your translations kind of hint to that some, but he's using that to describe this intimate relationship we share with one another that's rooted in an even more intimate relationship, our relationship with Christ. I want us to park here for a minute and taken us to Ephesians before. And if you have your Bibles, turn, flip over with me to Ephesians. I've used Ephesians to talk about our union with Christ, but I think Paul's using similar language here in Ephesians 5 to that of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ephesians 5, 
verses 29 through 32. It's up here on the screen if you don't have a copy of God's word. Paul says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What was a mystery, Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is now revealed to us that this one flesh union is pointing to something higher. It's pointing God's bride to her relationship with him, right? This one flesh union of marriage in Ephesians chapter five is extending for us Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? Our, our one flesh union is this earthly picture of our one flesh union with our perfect savior. So our life as believers is closely identified with that of Christ, that it's virtually indistinguishable. That's good news for us, right? Consider these other two passages that extend Paul's thoughts for us in regards to our union with Christ. Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.3, I often pray this verse in my own devotional time. For you have died, right, speaking to me, I've died. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I've died and my life is hidden with Christ in God, right? A, a believer's life is so closely identified to that of the life of Christ that Paul uses the language that our old selves are dead, right? Who we were, right? All of my baggage and my sins and my lustful pleasures, all of that is dead. And now I'm hid in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, you're hid in Christ Jesus. We live in Christ. Think about that for a moment, right? Believer, as you suffer, you don't suffer cut off. You don't suffer isolated. You suffer as one who's in Christ. Believer, as you wrestle with temptation, those temptations to, to sin, those temptations that come to us and entice us with our former lustful pleasures that once marred us. Remember, that's not who you are. Who you are is in Christ. Believer, when the accuser comes and he fills your mind with doubt, Thankful for the Puritan Thomas Watson it shapes, shapes my thinking on this. When the accuser comes and he fills your mind with doubt and he accuses you of your sins, you can say your accusations come too late. I've accused myself and Christ has died for my sin and now those sins no longer consume me and, I, and, and those sins are no longer my identity. My identity is in Christ. Your accusations come too late. How desperately do we need to hear that this morning? I know I do. For so long, I, I, I trust in my, my own pursuit 
of my own righteousness, my own pursuit of my, my own good works. And for long, I've been in this, this hamster wheel of this works-based salvation, all the while proclaiming it's in Christ alone, practically living as if I can earn my right standing. If only I could have grasped my union with Christ sooner, I would have been prevented from a ton of depressions, a lot of anxieties, Some of you in this room this morning, you're deeply discouraged, deeply discouraged. You're you're trying, and you work so hard, and you never seem to be able to make the progress that you think you should be able to make. Listen to this, Hebrews 1.3, the Hebraic author, he says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, how powerful our Savior is. And after making purification for sins, whose sins? Your sins. What does it say he did? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We we serve a seated Savior. And according to Psalm 110.1, Christ isn't going to stand again until all of his enemies are made his footstool. How are all of his enemies made his footstool? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Right, so we have this seated Savior. I, I heard one pastor say of, uh, say of this passage, he says this. He says, everybody in heaven is satisfied with the finished work of Jesus, but you're not. You think that you need to Add your contribution. Everybody in heaven satisfied with our seating Savior. Christ is seated, and he's conquering his enemies through the proclamation of the gospel. If you're in Christ, we can rest knowing that Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, accomplished our salvation. Right, And that unchanging truth is your refuge in the good times and in the bad times. And Jesus invites us, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, right? He invites us, believers, to come to rest. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Point three, union with Christ is practical for us. Union with Christ is practical for us. I think we've already demonstrated this, but it's worth further investigation I've long been discouraged by those who take the richness of doctrine, the richness of theology, and pit it against being practical. If we're approaching doctrine right, we see clearly that it's highly valuable, it's so nourishing, it's practical. So for the remainder of the service this morning, let's consider some of the implications of a believer's union with Christ. Paul certainly uses it in a practical way in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, but for our purposes, let's stick with, with what the Apostle Paul grounds his call to unity for, right, in the believer's union with Christ. And, and I'm going to pull some other passages that kind of support our union with Christ and, and demonstrate for us our implications, okay? So what are some other things that should come to mind when we're considering a believer's union with Christ? First, Union with Christ means that every sin is forgiven. Union with Christ means that every sin is forgiven. I've mentioned this some already, but, but this is your past sins believer. 
Believer, this is your present sins. Believer, this is, these are the sins that you committed on the way to church this morning against your spouse, against your kids, against your college roommate. Those sins. It's the, 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 the sins that you've yet to commit. All of those sins, the totality of those sins were paid for by Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago. All of those sins. Paul states in Ephesians chapter one, verses seven through eight, it says, in him, in Christ, he's speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and all insight. You realize how wonderful that is for you as a believer this morning. Do you realize how good that news is? Let let me zoom in even more for us on this, but oftentimes we pray and we ask God to forgive us of our sins. And, And some of us even go as far as to beg God to forgive us of our sins. Just God, forgive me one more time for this sin. And certainly Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. But how many of us pray these types of prayers thinking we need to pray that in order to receive forgiveness? The Catholic Church does, right? We bring our petitions and say, if I don't ask for forgiveness of this sin, I'm not, I'm not gonna be forgiven. But, but what if good doctrine, okay? What if good doctrine fueled or powered or drove, right? Good doctrine on a believer's union with Christ drove our prayers and the prayer became something along the lines of this. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge my many transgressions, my many sins, and I'm so thankful that Christ paid the payment of every single one of them. Thank you, God, for forgiving me in Christ. Thank you for pouring out every ounce of wrath for my sins on Jesus on the cross. Thank you for the confidence that I can have in my salvation because of Christ's death and resurrection and because of your unchanging character. What if our prayers were shaped by our union with Christ, right? I I really believe that's a Christ-centered approach to seeing our sins and how they've been paid for on the cross. Union with Christ means that we have imputed righteousness. Union with Christ means we have imputed righteousness. And, And imputed, it means something ascribed, right? Something given, As believers, we're given the righteousness of Jesus. So think about this. He didn't just die for our sins. Christ didn't just die for our sins. In, In this very unfair exchange, our sins are imputed. They're given. They're ascribed to Christ. Okay, that's what that's what Christ took from us. And his righteousness, his perfect person. And his work is imputed, ascribed, given to us as believers. This changes our identity, doesn't it? That, That imputed righteousness is what changes our identity. So no longer are... Uh, just our sins paid for. That, that's not just what happens there, but there's something else that happens, right? We, we shift from being sinners by our own doing to being saints 
because of Christ's doing. We, we shift from being sinners by our own doing, and we shift to being saints by Christ's doing. So, so what if we spent more time thinking of ourselves as saints? Not, 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 not because of anything that we bring to God, right? but solely because of Christ's shed blood and his imputed righteousness. And Paul makes this case in Ephesians 1 verse 4. It says, even as he, speaking of God, chose us in him, in who? In Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose his elect, okay, those of you that are in Christ before he even created the world. And he didn't do this because he peeked into your future and saw that you would be clever enough to choose him. Right? No, God ordained your salvation based on his good, generous, unchanging character. That, that, that dismisses for us any reason that we may have to boast about our own salvation. And that eliminates any reason we may have to boast about our own contributions. And he, he accomplished this predestined salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we would be, according to Ephesians 1.4, holy and blameless. So it's healthy for us to think of ourselves as saints. The Apostle Paul, in many of his letters, in this letter, in the, uh, the church of Ephesus, he greets them, not sinners who are at Ephesus. He greets them as saints, right? First Corinthians chapter three, we're, we're in the middle of learning about all the immorality at the church of Corinth, and, and Paul calls them brothers and sisters, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and his imputed righteousness to us. That's the foundation of our sainthood, right? That's that's the basis of our sainthood. And not to give some consideration to our saintly identity would be to, to cheapen the cost of this great salvation that's been provided for us. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, won't that puff up believers to, to be arrogant, to think of themselves as saints? And, and won't that call, cause them to fail to see their present sins and their need to repent of them? And my answer to you is somebody that's truly changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, somebody whose heart has been captivated by this precious truth, won't abuse it. They won't abuse it. He or she won't boast in self. They'll boast in Christ alone. So what if our prayer continued here and we shift from thanking God for forgiveness that he's provided for us in Christ Jesus and it, and it shifted here, right? And, and it went something like this, Lord, even though I still sin this side of eternity, I thank you. I thank you that sinner is no longer my primary identity, right? For you call me saint in Christ Jesus. You call me daughter. You call me son. And I know that this isn't because of anything in me, but solely based on Christ, his perfect person and his perfect work. Man, now we're on to something, right? Now union with Christ is really starting to shape our mind, shape our thinking, shape our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of our Savior. Continue looking with me. 
Union with Christ means that we have communion with God. Love Psalm 63. I go there often. This is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He says this. Just I'll just read these first eight verses. Just listen to this. You can, you can just tell the depth of David's communion with God. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. I love the language that David uses here. It's it's vivid. This is vivid language. He's, He's expressing this deep, intimate communion that he enjoys with the God who created the cosmos. He even longs for it desperately, which is a gift from God in and of itself, right? The God of the Bible is not the God of the deists. Right? He, he, he didn't create the world and now he sits back and he just kind of sees how it all plays out. He's way more kind than that. He's way more generous than that. He's way more personable than that. The creator of the cosmos, he knows you. He knows you. In our union with Christ has made it possible for for people like me, for people like you that are so distant and so far from God to have communion with Him. Isn't that beautiful? And He's not only just reconciled us to Himself so that we can commune with Him, but even goes further than that and provides the means or the vehicle by which we may know Him. Right, and in my mind, there's three primary, I believe the scriptures teach us three primary ways that we commune with God. Right? Just, on Sunday, just on Sunday morning, we, we have the preaching of the word of God that washes over us. It's this means of grace, this tangible means of grace by which we can know our God. He gives us baptism. He gives us the Lord's Supper, which are visible, earthly, vivid pictures of the gospel message. And so Christ, our union with Christ has made it possible for us to commune with God. Next, union with Christ means that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Union with Christ means that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 6 through 7 here. He says, but because I've said these things to you, this is Jesus speaking, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. And so the disciples here are it's the, the, the group of folks that he's speaking to, and he's telling them that he, it's, it's time for him to, to leave. And they're, they're depressed by this. They're mourning this. They're mourning that their Savior is, is about to leave them. But Jesus, here in this passage, he assures them that because of their union with him, God will always be present. God will always be near. As a matter of fact, he goes as far as to saying that it's better that he go and that the Holy Spirit come on his behalf. As believers, we can have confidence that God is very near because of his indwelling Holy Spirit that's given to those who enjoy union with Christ. During those overwhelming times in our lives, we can know that God is near. During those, those, those times where we're tempted to sin, we can know that God is very near because he lives in us. His Holy Spirit is the great counselor. His Holy Spirit will, will guide us in all truth. He's the guarantee. The Apostle Paul calls him the guarantee of our inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit in us glorifies, magnifies Christ so that you can see him and savor him more and more as you conform into the image of Jesus. And finally, union with Christ means that we have anticipation for the city to come. Union with Christ means that we have anticipation for the city to come. Hebrews chapter 13. I preached on this last year when we were going through Hebrews. I love this passage. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The Hebraic author in this passage, he, he knows intimately this struggling congregation that he's writing to. This sermon that he's given them, he knows their weaknesses, he knows their persecutions, he knows their temptations, and he reminds them of something important. He reminds them of of their Savior, of Christ Jesus who suffered for them. He reminds them that, that their Savior empathizes with them. And because of our union with Jesus, he reminds us, reminded them that we can suffer and we can grieve differently. We can, we can persevere in the midst of suffering because as believers who enjoy union with Christ, we anticipate the city that is to come. The day, Joel, he talked about it, right? The day where there's no more suffering, there's no more tears, there's no more sickness, right? There's no more sin. We'll know what it's like for the first time to worship our God and all, and all his glory without any hindrance whatsoever of suffering and sin. Man, I long for that day. I wrote an article a few months back where I was talking about my uh, grandma Janie. My grandma Janie was a, was a believer. She uh, was my dad's um, mother. And when my dad was very young, um, she became paralyzed 
and she couldn't care for her children in the way that I, I know she wanted to care for her children. Most of her life was spent in a nursing home, having to have people help to feed her, bathe her, get her out of bed. She was completely and utterly dependent on other people for her well-being, doing many of the tasks that we take for granted on a, a daily basis. My dad made sure um, that we saw her regularly uh, as her, her grandchildren. And I don't have one memory, not one memory, of her complaining or being bitter. If she, she struggled with those things, and I'm sure she did struggle with those things. She, she took those thoughts captive. My grandmother, she, she knew that her circumstances were being used as a means to mold her more into the image of her Savior. And she didn't try to change her circumstances. She didn't talk of being healed. And she didn't listen to teachers that filled her mind with the hopes of being healed. She knew that she was right where God wanted her. And she persevered till the day that she died. She leaned into her union with Christ. And, and I believe that she understood the practical benefits of that deep theological truth. She died when I was a teenager, and, and, and her suffering has an impact on me that's far outlived her life. My grandmother, Janie, she knew her union with Christ. She thought about it often. So the question that I have for you this morning is, are you enjoying the richness of your union with Christ, right? Or are you settling for something less than that? Are you distracted by other matters? Do you think, okay, I've got union with Christ. Check that box. I'm going to move on to something deeper, something better. I hope not. If you're an unbeliever in the room this morning, do you see what you're missing? Has the Holy Spirit given you that gift to see what you're missing? May we be a church that looks to Christ, that sees Christ, that savors Christ, that communes with Christ. Our primary text, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. I hope you can walk away from Coastal this morning with a thorough understanding of that passage. And I hope that the other passages that we looked at only amplified that one passage that we're one in Christ Jesus. And the reason we're one in Christ Jesus is because we're one with our Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our union with you. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it's changing us day by day. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord. I pray God, we complicate things so often, Lord, and you've made it very simple for us. Help us to feel the, the freeness of meditating on our union with you. And we give you all the glory and all the praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.